Support for this podcast comes from San Francisco International Airport. At SFO, you can discover award-winning flavors and unique shops all before takeoff. Learn more about what's at SFO at flysfo.com. Hey, it's Glenn Washington from Snap Judgment. And if you love what you're hearing, and I know you love what you're hearing, please consider becoming a KQED member special access to cool events, behind-the-scenes footage, and so much more. Plus, you'll sleep better at night knowing you did your part for the community you depend upon. It's in you. Please be in it. Visit donate.kqed.org slash podcasts to sign up now. That's podcast with an S. Thanks. From KQED. This is the California Report magazine. And on today's show, women running for local office in California react to the drama around Supreme Court nominee Brett Kavanaugh. It really makes me ponder what our democracy has turned into. And do we have a democracy? Plus, I get some help from an expert to figure out my family's carbon footprint. We don't get credit for all that bicycling? And the journey of Alice Coltrane, who pioneered a sound rooted in Hindu spirituals. Everybody's just picking up a drum or uh, claves or something, you know what I mean? Because you want to participate in the celebration. I'm Sasha Coca, and this is the California Report magazine. Your state, your stories. It's been a tough week for many of us Californians who've been glued to the coverage of Supreme Court nominee Brett Kavanaugh and the bitter divide it's exposed in our country about gender, sexual violence, and credibility. We're the weekly storytelling show for The California Report. We don't cover breaking news or moment-to-moment developments. And The Kavanaugh Story is evolving fast. What's become clear, though, is that people are frustrated with a toxic political environment— But there's also a surge of first-time women candidates wanting to jump into the political arena this November, hoping to make a change. We've been bringing you some of their stories as part of our series, The Long Run. So we figured we'd check back in with some of those candidates this week. Let's start with Mayel Jenkins, who's running for a seat on the San Juan Unified School District Board of Education in Sacramento County. I have been paying attention to the Supreme Court hearings, and it's really hard to shake off what we're witnessing as a nation and what we're, what we're experiencing as women. And there's a message in all of this, and that message is that it's hard, it takes courage to speak up. And I know me as a woman, that I accommodate, that I make adjustments on how I go through the world And I know looking around and talking to others, they're tired of making adjustments, tired of justifying, tired of being on the defensive for things that should be human rights. We also caught up with Betty Valencia, who's running for a seat on the Orange City Council. One of the things that I took away was what Senator Leahy said to Dr. Ford, and that was that courage is contagious. And I feel encouraged, but I also feel scared that this may not be enough to stop a lifetime appointment. It really makes me ponder what 
our democracy has turned into? And do we have a democracy? I don't want to be discouraged. I need to have that courage that is contagious. And, and Dr. Ford has given me that courage. Finally, we talked to Aisha Wahab. She's running for a city council seat in Hayward in Alameda County. I believe Dr. Ford. As women, we know we carry a great deal without sharing it with friends and family. We have all experienced something we internalize. And that doesn't mean it didn't happen. I hope this case allows for women and men to speak their truth. Aisha's family is originally from Afghanistan. She's a millennial and she grew up in foster care. She says her motto is, if you don't see the woman, be the woman. Like Mayel Jenkins and Betty Valencia, she's been keeping an audio diary from the campaign trail. Hi, I'm Aisha Wahab, and I'm running for Hayward City Council this November. Very excited, very nervous, very uncomfortable, very scared, which is not a feeling that I historically ever have, or the fact that we just don't know what's going to happen, you know. Um, every single day is an emotional roller coaster, and I... I'm pretty much a balanced person on an emotional level, so this is very new to me. We now have seven people in my race officially on the ballot. This poses a problem because it usually will help incumbents win. The average voter will just definitely say, you know what, I'm just going to select, especially on a down ballot vote, select the incumbents. So we definitely need to get our message across and make people know our name, definitely look for us, and then obviously vote for us. We just secured Senator Kevin DeLeon's endorsement, as well as the California State Superintendent's uh, endorsement of public education, uh, Delane Easton. So Dolores Huerta, who organized with Cesar Chavez for the United Farm Workers, has officially endorsed us. We're very excited about that because our campaign is all about working people and issues that affect working people. But we are just pushing through. Right now, I'm only focused on actually doing door-to-door. I I literally am not trying to focus on anything else. So we will see what happens. Um, Drinking a lot of water and just seeing what happens at the end of the day, you know. And we're getting decent feedback, too, so we're happy. Many people have told me, especially in, in a lot of disenfranchised communities that I specifically even belong to, whether I've met other foster youth that have said that, you know, I'm, I'm very happy somebody's doing it because we need a voice too, as well as immigrant communities, you know, women, young folks, the whole nine. They've all told me that it really doesn't matter what happens in November. The point is that you definitely are cracking that ceiling for the rest of us. Aisha Wahab's audio diary as she campaigns as a first-time woman candidate. She's running for city council in the Bay Area city of Hayward. It's easy to feel despair about how daunting it seems to change institutions or tackle issues that feel so huge. 
We've just heard from women who are eager to make change from inside the political system, but other women are using art to amplify their concerns. Now we're going to meet Teresa Siangatanu. She's a poet and a mental health advocate who works with young people. She grew up in San Francisco, but her family is from Samoa in the Pacific Islands. She says people there depend on water for survival. But that relationship is shifting. We talked to her for the final installment in our series about how climate change has impacted people's lives in very personal and specific ways. It's called This Moment on Earth. This is Teresa Siangatanu's Moment. Water, for me, equates to belonging or the sense of belonging, the sense of home, because I know my home and my homeland is in the water, but the water is also a threat. There's now a such thing as a climate change refugee, and I see that amongst my community of folks having to leave where they're living because the sea levels are rising and they literally cannot survive. It's hard to um, imagine being hopeful when you know that there are very real things happening to the place that you're from. And I imagine having children one day and wondering, like, can I bring them with me to visit Samoa? (laughs) Will it still be there or will it be underwater? Will the only things I have to understand my culture and my identity be the books that my grandpa wrote (laughs) and the limited knowledge I have from what was passed down to me? And so I get really scared. I get really nervous about what legacy will be left for future generations in my community. So this is my poem called Atlas. If you open up any atlas and take a look at a map of the world, almost every single one of them slices the Pacific Ocean in half. To the human eye, most maps center all land masses on Earth, creating the illusion that water can handle the butchering and be pushed to the edges of the world, as if the Pacific Ocean isn't the largest body living today beating the loudest heart, the reason why land has a pulse in the first place, the audacity one must have to create a visual so violent as to assume that nobody comes from water, so nobody will care what you do with it. I think the poet is responsible for making what is typically taboo or typically off limits to talk about make it possible to talk about and make it accessible, especially right now um, in regards to climate change. I see poetry, I see it as literally as medicine. That was poet Teresa Siangatanu sharing her perspective on climate change for our series This Moment on Earth. So all this talk about climate change, the big climate summit we had here in California, it got me thinking, what am I doing about climate change? I don't even know exactly what my carbon footprint is. So I decided to invite a guy named Bill Murphy over to help me figure it out. Hey, Sasha, pleased to meet you. Welcome to the craziness. This is my family on a Sunday morning. Bill's not a professional (laughs) carbon footprint tracker. In fact, he's a retired cost accounting manager, a kind of numbers geek. And he runs a blog called Global Warming for Busy People. This is my husband, Carl. Hi. Hey, Carl. This is Bill. Nice to meet you, Bill. These are my kids. Um, Ahmad is eight and Joaquin is six. Okay. So, Do you know what global warming is? 
It's where the earth gets really warm and ice melts in the Arctic and some animals can die. It feels overwhelming. We don't know how to start and we are a busy family with two young kids and the flow of life. The best thing to do is prevent yourself from squashing ants and instead uh, set yourself up using data to squash really big, gigantic things. I'm noticing I really want Bill's approval for everything we're doing right. So, Bill, you can see we are a bike family. We have hmm, probably a dozen bikes down here for kids. Adults. Back at our kitchen table, we log on to Bill's favorite online calculator. It's called TerraPass. First question, our cars. We hardly drive. Carl rides his bike to work. Mm -hmm. I ride my bike to Bart. Mm. We drive to go camping. Yeah. We drive to the grocery store. Okay, so we do have two cars, and one is a Toyota 4Runner with an eight-cylinder engine. I parked it across the street, hoping Bill wouldn't notice it. So that vehicle, because it's an eight-cylinder engine, mm -hmm. uh, it's almost two tons worth of CO2 or carbon pollution per year. That's crazy because... I mean, I, when I'm sweating up those hills on my bike every day, I would like to feel a little bit of credit for that on this carbon footprint. Mm -hmm. Come on. You don't really get uh, credit for virtuous things that you're already doing. What we're doing is assessing ugly. Air travel. Oh, boy. So I put in my couple of work trips and our family vacations. So notice so. what just happened. Whoa. There's a wow called air travel, which is 11 tons of carbon per year from your air travel. Right, so how do we, for example, between the Bay Area and Los Angeles, we make a choice not to drive because we're thinking, who else wants to be in a car with a six or eight year old that whole amount of time? Um, and well, it also it also saves money if we yeah. you know fly on a cheap airline, right? Yeah. This is tough. Right? This is tough. That's, this, that's why this is the devil's problem because um, the things that we do that create greenhouse gas pollution deeply infect every area of society. Like all those deliveries we actually get as we're trying to finish the carbon calculator. Who is it? It's for us! Yay! Sure, we're not driving to the store, but stuff is getting flown and driven right to our house. Uh-oh. Now I have to talk about our laundry. We do a load of laundry a day. Or more. This is or the more. bane of our existence as parents. They're squirting ketchup on their clothes. It's like mm -hmm. tons of laundry. Our workout Kids yogurt. have all over their, oh, yogurt. Don't even get me started on the amount of mm -hmm. yogurt we have to launder Bloody noses. Week. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Lots of bloody noses. Then Bill tells me it's actually okay that we do so much laundry. So probably your electricity per month is, is, is zero. Yeah. Yes, it's zero. That's right. Because we're, cause we're on solar. Yeah. So you get a get-out-of-jail-free card. Ah, I don't have to feel so guilty about not hanging <laughs> what, everything what about, on the line. What about the hot water we use to wash? Yeah, that was heated by a natural gas-powered water heater, right? Mm -hmm. Yep, that's a demerit. All right, so looking at this calculator, we've gone through our cars, our public transit usage, our air travel, our home energy. We're at about 17 tons of CO2 per year. And this mm -hmm. is, that's the equivalent of planting 409 urban trees. That's shocking to me because 409 trees sounds like a huge number, even though our footprint is way smaller than the U.S. average. 
But Bill does have some good ideas for us. For one, he tells us to turn our water heater down to warm rather than scalding. You know, because you're paying for all that standby, and you're actually only using a tiny amount of it. And two, eat a plant-based diet, but don't waste your broccoli, because even if you compost, food waste is a big contributor to climate change. Ahmad? What? This oatmeal that you asked mom to serve you another bowl of it? I didn't say so. Uh, well, okay, so here it is. So this is like a whole bunch of food that's going to waste. I'm not gonna name get, names, I wanna get but... a scale, and we measure it, we weigh it. I think that would be fine if we weighed the amount of compost we generate. Last, the carbon footprint calculator tells me I could offset our emissions by paying about 175 bucks a year to support things like reforestation or solar farms. I'd say kudos because of setting a, a strong positive example for the kids. You know, to save the planet, think deeply about places you care about and people you care about. And ultimately, that's Bill's biggest advice. Save what you love and take time to see what changes you can make in your life. Okay, well, hey, thanks. It was a pleasure. Uh, yeah, thank love you for seeing coming. your house, man. Learned Great neighborhood and really, well, kids are a hoot. <laughs> well, thank you. Thank you very much. for another in our series, Letter to My California Dreamer. We've been asking you, our listeners, to write a letter to one of the first people in your family who came to the Golden State with a dream. This week's letter comes from Ty Moses of Santa Cruz to her father. Dear Dad, In 1954, you arrived in Los Angeles from Coney Island. You came with your portable typewriter and a dream of writing the next great American novel. The year after, your father, who you called Pop, used his savings to buy a train ticket from Coney Island to L.A. Pop showed up one morning at your apartment on Crenshaw Boulevard, carrying his canvas bag of bricklayer's tools. He slept on the couch while you worked late into the night at your typing table in the corner of the room. Pop would get up early and shine up his tools, his hammer, his chisel, his trowels. Tool bag in hand, he'd walk from job site to job site. But people didn't build with bricks in earthquake country. Every afternoon, Pop trudged back to the cramped little apartment, dejected. The two of you made uneasy roommates. Your dream was to be a published novelist, the next Joseph Heller, and you believed that California, with its limitless horizons and golden light, would make your dream a reality. Pop just wanted a job doing honest labor. You both shared the California dream of opportunity and success. So the two of you came west with the hopes of building a better life. Yours with words, Pop's with brick and mortar. You never did achieve the literary recognition you craved, but you did publish one short story in a literary journal. The title was Pop Comes to California, and it was your masterpiece. I never knew Pop, this grandfather who died long before I was born, but I met him in the pages of your story. To me, the California dream represents freedom, the freedom to be the hero of my own life, as you like to say, quoting Dickens. After a lifetime in the Golden State, I'm on the verge of leaving, heading north to Oregon, where I hope to write a novel of my own. 
the price of living in California has risen a bit too high. I still believe in the California dream. I'm just going to look for it somewhere else. Love, Ty. We'd love to hear your letter to one of your family's California dreamers. Maybe even you were the first in your family to come to California with a dream. Check out the form we've got on CaliforniaReport.org and take a few minutes to tell us your story. We might ask you to record it to air here on the California Report magazine. That's jazz musician Alice Coltrane on her 1975 album, Eternity. The song is called Spiritual Eternal, and that's also the name of a new collection of -of out-of-print albums released this month. She recorded them in Los Angeles after moving there from New Jersey following the death of her husband, John Coltrane. You can hear Alice Coltrane's music gradually transform from traditional jazz into a haunting mix of Hindu devotional music layered with gospel and funk. Reporter Stephen Cuevas tells us about Alice Coltrane's journey from the smoky, boozy world of jazz to the ascetic life of someone on a very different spiritual path. By the time Alice McLeod met her future husband, John Coltrane, in 1963, the classically trained musician with a background in gospel had already mastered bebop piano, and like John, she was looking to push jazz further. The couple would soon marry, start a family, and collaborate musically and spiritually until John's untimely death in 1967 at age 40. He had that sort of overwhelming presence about him. He never really had to talk or instruct music. He really didn't have to do that. Alice Coltrane, who passed away 10 years ago, talked about their brief but profound partnership in a rare 1981 interview on NPR's Piano Jazz. Just being around him, listening to him express his ideas musically, it really is very inspirational, and it was to many people. And it was John who encouraged Alice to take up the harp, an instrument that had fascinated both of them. And so he bought her one. It'd be delivered to the family's house just weeks after his death. But Alice mastered it well enough to play it on her debut 1968 album, A Monastic Trio. The heart became a fixture of subsequent albums, including the three reissued this month, recorded for Warner Brothers in Los Angeles between 1975 and 1978. Coltrane's harp and her piano sit where they have for decades, in the front room of the Coltrane family home on a semi-rural property north of Malibu. That's the harp. That's the, the harp. And I took the cover off for you because it just, we need to see it sometimes. Daughter Sita Michelle Coltrane, a jazz vocalist, lives there now with her family. And some mornings she would just play her harp. I've woken up to that harp right behind you. What a beautiful sound at 6.30 a.m. Sita Michelle also remembers making the move from New Jersey to the new, wondrous world of Southern California. It coincided with her mother's growing fascination with Middle Eastern and South Asian music and culture. Coltrane also established an ashram, holding weekly services in the living room, which often turned into impromptu jam sessions. 
She'd already been using instruments like sitars and tablas in the sprawling modal jazz that she helped pioneer. But conventional jazz instrumentation and composition was already beginning to fall away in pursuit of new sounds. As a teenager, Sita Michelle says she'd sometimes tag along with her mom to the Warner Brothers studio in Burbank. She'd play hand percussion and chants on songs inspired by Indian devotional songs that she and her little brothers sang around the house. Because they were like church hymns to us. Even though it was Sanskrit, we could sing. You know, it was a part of our life. On the song Om Supreme from the album Eternity, her first L.A. record for Warner, Coltrane pays homage to the family's new life in Southern California and what she perceived as the divine forces that drew her west. The album is driven by Coltrane's surging Wurlitzer organ, outfitted with a new analog synthesizer that enabled her to bend and stretch notes like a sitar player, or a hard-charging saxophonist overblowing the notes a la John Coltrane. Two more studio albums for Warner would follow in quick succession. They'd be the furthest Coltrane would get from conventional jazz yet. The albums are looser, deeply rooted in gospel and Indian music. There are fewer professional jazz musicians in the mix. The albums are instead awash with exotic ensemble percussion and chanting choruses. Purusha Hickson met Coltrane around 1973, and he became part of the loose-knit ensemble of singers and musicians recruited from her growing spiritual community. He says the Warner sessions were joyful. You're more like a village musician. When there's a celebration, everybody's just picking up a drum or uh, claves or something, you know what I mean? Because you want to participate in the celebration. Coming up into the church and then the association, great John Coltrane. She brought all of that with her own deep connection with God. Even though she had some uh, questionable musicians, speaking about myself, man. <laughs> By the end of Coltrane's Warner contract, there were new priorities, including the founding of a 50-acre spiritual retreat near Malibu. Daughter Sita Michelle says Alice still did the occasional concert, but at select venues only. The jazz club days were over. They were smoking then. The alcohol. This is now a person that's taken spiritual vows, devoting herself to God, and it really wasn't a place where you shake your hips. It all fit with the lifestyle that she had chosen. As Coltrane suggested to Marion McPartland on NPR's Piano Jazz back in 1981, a new musical phase was taking shape. What's the label now that you were All right, I am not contracted. And since the Warner Brothers contract finalized, that was in 1978, and I made the last double record album. And I guess uh, you're still writing and you're still composing. Yes, yes, definitely. So. 
After Warner Brothers, Coltrane recorded and released four limited edition cassette tapes of dreamy, minimalistic, devotional music in the 80s and 90s. This more purely sacred music was already starting to take shape on the three albums reissued this month. Her explorations may have alienated some jazz purists over the years, but they've won generations of new fans and inspired musicians far beyond the world of jazz. For The California Reports, I'm Stephen Cuevas in Los Angeles. And that's the California Report magazine. We're a production of KQED Public Radio in San Francisco. Our director is Susie Racho. Our technical producer is Seal Muller. And we had additional engineering this week from Katie McMurrin. Our senior editor is Victoria Mauleon. David Marks is our online producer. Our intern is Marisol Medina Cadena. And our team includes Kat Snow, Becky Hogue, Katie Orr, Ethan Lindsay, and Holly Kernan. I'm Sasha Coca. Thanks for listening. This is the California Report magazine. Your state, your stories. Support for the California Report comes from Block Construction, a builder committed to enhancing communities in the Bay Area and Central Coast. B-L-A-C-H dot com. Block Construction. Together, building greatness. And Eric and Wendy Schmidt, whose Fund for Strategic Innovation supports transformative ideas that benefit humanity while protecting the natural world, recognizing through science the interdependence of all living systems. Do you love learning about the San Francisco Bay Area? Its history, its people, its unique blend of cultures? Then you should check out the Bay Curious book. I'm Katrina Schwartz, editor and producer on the Bay Curious podcast, and I'm here to let you know that for the month of May, we've worked out a sweet deal for KQED podcast listeners. Right now, you can get the Bay Curious ebook for $1.99. That's right, $1.99. Just search for Bay Curious wherever you get your ebooks or find the link in our show notes. This offer does expire at the end of the month, though, so you'll want to act on it fast. Happy reading! Hi there, I'm Randa Fatah from ThruLine. If you're listening to this podcast, you know that KQED produces exceptional storytelling that keeps you informed, inspired, and entertained. Their podcasts cover issues from your neighborhood to the entire country and everything in between. Support this work today. You can help us continue to bring quality podcasts to your ears. Just head to donate.kqed.org podcast. That's donate.kqed.org slash podcast.